and we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. If you have it open, your Bible's open at Ephesians, we're going to look at it uh, together. Uh, we're going to range across those first few chapters that we read. The world in which we live, particularly in Western Europe, is taking a, quite a dramatic turn against Christianity and Christianity's values. And we could either, as a church, fall into a pity party and say, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Or we can have the confidence that God's Word would have us have, and we could give ourselves to what Paul calls these people to do. And what Paul calls the... What Paul calls these people to do is to stand faithfully and to pray hard. And I think, well, you know, is there any hope that the gospel will spread? Uh, some of us heard a man speaking uh, about six weeks ago, a man called Lindsay Brown. He was speaking at the missionary rally at our church's synod. And he was outlining for us what God has been doing across the world in the last hundred years. And the figures that he gave were astonishing. And one of his points that he was making was, we too often only look at a very short window, a very small window, or a very localized place. And we see in a few years that in our particular location, God doesn't seem to be doing much. And we get discouraged. Or we might think, well, maybe there's no truth to this at all. Lindsay Brown uh, outlined various other places, took us on a little tour around the world. In France in 1910, there were reckoned to be 4,000 evangelical Christians. By 2019, that number has grown to 400,000. He mentioned Nepal. And I thought I'd got my figures wrong in my notes, and I went looking uh, for more statistics on Nepal. In Nepal in 1951, in its census, there were registered no or counted no Christians in Nepal, 1951. 1961, 458 identified themselves as Christians. In 1990, so 30 years following that, 10,000 identified themselves as Christians. In 2001, in Nepal, 100,000 people identified themselves as Christians. This morning, I looked up Nepal, and they reckon that there's between 2 to 3 million Christians. Lindsay Brown said that in 2019 it was reckoned that there were 900,000. So he's, he's being conservative in his figure. He's not one of these guys that, that hypes up, but they reckon there may be as many as 2 to 3 million. His conservative figure is 1 million, but by any standard, those figures are incredible. None in 1951, 70 years later, 10% of the country. Albania, 1990, he said there were six Christians that he knew of in Albania, and he knew three of them personally. In Albania, 2019, 18,000 Christians. He said about Mongolia. Mongolia, in uh, I think the 1980s, had six Christians that, that, were, that were known of in the country. 
and by uh, 2019, there were 150,000. Lindsay gave his talk on a Wednesday night on the Friday afternoon at a phone call from Afghanistan. Doesn't often happen, but it did that day. And it was a video call actually with somebody that I had met here in Letterkenny years ago. But while we were talking, another guy came into the room and he was uh, an Afghani um, missionary who had been to Mongolia. And as we were talking about Mongolia, the man I was talking with said, yes, indeed. Mongolia has seen astonishing growth in the gospel. And I said, well, Lindsey Brown talked about too often we expect God or we, we don't expect enough of God in a hundred years and we're looking too much at too short a time. And he says, never mind a hundred years, 30 years. Mongolia has exploded with the gospel. And he said, this man here has been working with Mongolian missionaries who have come from there to here to share the gospel. And so there's something to really encourage us as we consider the growth of the gospel, the growth of Christianity across the world. It may not be exploding where we are at this moment, but it is in other places. And that's been the history of Christianity. It it grows in bursts and spurts in different places. But what should that encourage us to do? It should encourage us to pray. And that's something that has been really challenging me recently. I was listening to an interview with a preacher called Stuart Elliott. And uh, he recommended a book on prayer. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to read that book. I have it on my shelf. And I got it down. And it's a real challenging book on prayer. And if you're a Christian, you know that prayer is something that is a real challenge and that many times we struggle with it. And it's easy to feel beat up about it. And certainly this book was beating me up. Let me read you some quotes from it. The preacher who is feeble in prayer is feeble in life-giving forces. There was a challenge. The prayer that makes much of our preaching must be made much of. I thought, well, do I pray much for what I'm doing at the minute? Do I ask you to pray much for what's happening at the minute? Light praying will make light preaching. Talking to men about God is a great thing. But talking to God about men is greater still. And so these bullets coming out of this book were striking me and I was thinking, I need to be more a man of prayer. And I think it's a challenge that comes to all of us. There is on the one hand the tremendous encouragement that Lindsay Brown gives us about the spread of the gospel. And then there's this challenge that we should be people of prayer and those two are connected. Because it is where God's people often have been giving themselves to prayer that over the succeeding decades, the answers to those prayers are seen. And so I want to call you for the sake of our town, our county, our country, to give yourselves to prayer. And rather than that coming to us just this morning as a brute challenge, a blunt challenge, I want to take us to this book that finishes with a call to prayer, finishes with it, note, so that we can be encouraged to pray. 
And so rather than going to the verse at the end that calls us to pray, we'll do that um, next Lord's Day evening. I want us to move throughout the opening part of the letter to see two things this morning, and then we'll finish with some application. Two things uh, to see. First of all, pray because you can. Pray because you can. The command is at the end of the letter. But that command builds on what has been said in the letter. And that's always the way it is with Paul. That's the way it is with Christianity. Religion says, do, 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 and maybe God will accept. Maybe God will accept you. Notice the structure of this letter. It starts off with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks about how God has forgiven and how God would accept us through Jesus Christ. And then, growing out of that acceptance, comes the instructions for how rescued, forgiven people are to live. And that includes prayer. See that? that that's a huge contrast from what every other religion in the world teaches. They teach, do, 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 and then you'll be accepted. The Bible says, Jesus has done it. Trust him. And you'll be accepted. And then you will live this way and this way and this way. Very, very different. That's why it's called grace, which means gift. And so as we come to look at this, we need to note how Paul starts off. Because how he starts off shows us the soil out of which prayer grows. And there's three things to note. Pray because you can. Pray or prayer we learn, first of all, is an action of a beloved child. Prayer is an action of a beloved child. How does the letter start? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on to say in verse, uh, in verse f- 5, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Here's something that's true for the Christian. The Christian is someone who has been adopted and brought into God's family. The Christian is someone who gets to call God Father. And whenever a Christian is praying, they're coming not simply to generic God up there, but to a Father. A Father whose character is described here in these verses. And we find that He is loving. We're told, in love, he predestined us. Why did he do In love. In love, we're told. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Here's a God who lovingly chooses people. Here's a God who lovingly adopts people. Here is a God who has brought people into his family so they can have the pleasure of calling him Father. And what's he like? Not only is he loving, but we see too that he is generous. Verse uh, 3. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In verse 8, it says that he lavished on us the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us Lavished, what a lovely word. To pour out, to heap up something on somebody. Here's a God who is generous. 
And not only is he generous, but he's wise. Look at verse 8, in all wisdom. You know, whenever we come to pray, we need to remember that the person who is a Christian comes to a father who is loving and generous and wise. And we need to remember that he's wise because wisdom, wisdom means that there are things that will puzzle us that we don't understand with our small minds, but that he does with his infinite mind and that his ways are higher than our ways. But because he's loving, we can trust him with the ways that we can't understand fully yet. And whenever there are delays, we have to remember that he is wiser and he is more loving and he is more generous. And so that, as a friend of mine says, there are only two answers to prayer for the Christian. Yes, and I've got something better. Those are the only two answers for the Christian. Yes, or I've got something better. Or I've got something better at a better time. Or yes, but at a better time. God's answers, because he is he's generous and he's good to his children, those are the answers for the believer. And he's powerful. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Verse 19 of chapter 1 where uh, Paul talks about God's power and he says about his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. How do we know there is a God? How do we, we see his existence in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What an astonishing moment. As Jesus rises from the dead. How do we know God's powerful? There's the proof of it. And so we come to pray to one who is loving, to one who is kind, to one who is wise, to one who is powerful. There's encouragement for us to pray. You know, when a child comes to their father and asks, the father delights in that, or a good father delights in it. Sadly, there will be fathers who don't delight and see their children as a nuisance. But God does not see his children as a nuisance. In love, he has chosen us to be his children. And so here's prayer. Prayer is the action of a beloved child. Secondly, prayer is the action of a forgiven child. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this is how... Somebody who is flawed like me, somebody who is sinful like me, somebody who is guilty like me, like all of us, could be adopted by a holy God. You see, it's not everybody that has the privilege of calling God Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, we'll all meet God someday. Every one of us will meet God someday, but only those who have come to Jesus will meet him as Father. Everybody else will meet him as judge. And prayer is the action of a forgiven child, someone who has 
gone to Jesus and said, I am guilty. Will you take my guilt? I am a sinner. Will you take my sin? Will you become, as it were, unacceptable in God's sight so that I could become acceptable? You see, this is really important because that means that what our world so often thinks of, that prayer is just a great free-for-all for anybody, that God is like some kind of vending machine, and you can go to God and you can put in your, your coins and say, I would like this, 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 and this, and throw in a bit of that while you're at it too. Um, that idea of God. And then people get upset. They say, well, I prayed and God didn't answer. Well, what right did you think that you had to come to God and for Him to answer your prayer? Oh, is that not just what He does? No, that's not just what He does. We can only come to God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Otherwise, we're coming on the basis of who I am who you are. Martin Luther uh, spoke of the, the, the pride that there is in doing that in coming on our own merits. You know, I think, God, you should listen to me because, well, just look at me and who I am. That's effectively what it is. What the Bible says is, no, 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 we come and we say, look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Hear me because you're looking at him and I'm looking at him and I'm trusting in him. Prayer is the action of a forgiven child. But those, uh, well, let me make an, uh, two applications here. Speak in a moment to Christians, but to anyone here or anyone watching online or anyone listening who hasn't yet put your trust in Christ, your, your, your prayers are not acceptable to God because they come from unclean lips and an unclean heart. And there is only one prayer that God guarantees to hear from you. And it's the prayer that says, Lord, will you make me clean? Will Jesus take my sin and make me clean? Will you forgive me through his blood, through his death on the cross? And then you will find yourself washed clean and adopted into his family, and you will be able to say, Father, Father. Let me make an application also to those of you who have done that. See, this is really helpful because sometimes we can feel, um, we can feel as we come to God in prayer, oh, God won't hear me because I'm, I'm such a second-rate Christian, or I'm so insignificant. And why would he listen to me? Why would he listen to my prayers? you are a forgiven, blood-bought child. You may feel guilt, but you're forgiven. You may feel second class, but you're significant because God gave His Son for you. You may feel as if you have no right to come into God's presence and make requests. Why would He grant those requests? He will grant those requests if it is part of His wise and good plan to do what's best for you because of who Jesus is. And so pray because you are forgiven. Don't hang back. Don't stand back. Thirdly, prayer is the action of an indwelt child. An indwelt child. Martin Luther 
said prayer is the Christian's hardest work. Maybe you found that. It's tough going to, to pray and to keep praying and to persist and to be patient and uh, to keep going at it. But God says, or sorry, Paul says that God has given us his spirit in verse 13. He says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. God gives his Holy Spirit. We've thought of God the Father. We've thought of God the Son. Here is God the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And what's his role? One of his roles is to come and to be with God's people. And at our midweek Bible studies, we've been learning about the Holy Spirit. And we've been learning that in many ways, he is God's communications officer. The Holy Spirit reveals to us, shows us who God is, helps us grasp the personhood of God, the personality of God, helps us to, to know that God is there and that He is real and that He cares. He is God's communications officer. He's the one who gave us the Word of God in our Bibles so that we could read and have communication from God to us. He's the one who helps us to pray, we read in Romans uh, chapter 8. Uh, he is the one who helps us in our weakness when we don't know what to pray for. He helps us to pray. What an encouragement. So not only can we pray because we have a Father in heaven who loves to have his kids come to him and ask, not only can we pray because we have a big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has removed any hindrance, any stain on our record that we might think would make the Father displeased. He swept it all away and said, just go and talk to him. It's all dealt with. I've made it all right. But God, the Holy Spirit, has been given to us to help us to pray. I came across a quote recently. The great duty of prayer is to get a sight of God in heaven and Christ at his right hand. You might think, well, no, no, surely the great duty of prayer is to do a lot of asking. That's what prayer is. That's part of prayer. But what actually happens when we pray? Prayer is not just bringing a list of, of requests to God. What happens when a child comes to their father? A child doesn't come to their father and set down a list of paper and go, there, I've, I've written down what I want there. And if you could just have a look at it sometime, that would be okay. That's not the way a child comes to a father. That's the way a slave comes to a master. But we're told that we have a loving father in heaven. A child comes to their father and they look up into their father's face and say, Daddy, could you do this for me? And could you do that for me? And, and as they start to look into their father's face, what do they see? They see their father. And they see by the, the reaction on the father's face, I could ask for more. Or they learn more. They go, oh, look how much he cares for me. Look how much he delights me. Look how much he loves me. 
And in a child coming to their father and asking, they learn about their father. They get a clear view of what their father's like. And so it is with God, that as we come to him in prayer, the Holy Spirit shows us more of who God is. And we're encouraged to pray more. As we see how kind he is, as we see how generous he is, as we see, as he says here, uh, a clear view of God in heaven and Christ at his right hand. We're encouraged to know that our sins are forgiven. We come thinking, oh, I'm so unworthy. And as we start to pray and confess our sinfulness, the Holy Spirit shows us something of Christ and we see how forgiven we are. And this is all God in his kindness saying, I want you to come and talk to me because you are my children. And I will do everything to help you and to encourage you in this. And you know what I find really interesting? When we look at Paul's prayers in Ephesians and in his other letters, where do they come? So Paul starts off and he tells us about God and what God has done. And then he tells about who we are and what we should do. And what does he do? He doesn't then pray at the end of Ephesians and say, Now, having told you a lot of things that you must do, a lot of commands, he doesn't say, Now, Lord, I pray that these people would stop their bickering and fighting in the church. I pray that these people would love one another and I pray that these people would um, stop stealing and I pray that these people would stop getting drunk and I pray that these fathers would not exasperate their children and I pray that these uh, children would obey their parents. He doesn't do that at all. Where do Paul's prayers come in the letters? In chapter 1, he's he's outlined in one great flowing sentence all that God has done, or some of what God has done even, not even all of it, but with great broad brushstrokes. He paints a picture of what God has done. And then he bursts into one other big long sentence of prayer where he says, I want you to see this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches to which he has called you, his glorious inheritance in the saints. I want you to know his incomparably great power at work in us who believe. It's as he's been seeing God that he really gets carried away in prayer. And so pray, pray because you can. Pray because you can. And our time, our time is gone, but let me say in the second place, pray because you must. Pray because you must not the kind of commanding must, but it is necessary. It is necessary. It is vital that we do. And as we read through Ephesians, we see that there are at least two negative reasons and two positive reasons why we ought to pray. Let me give you the two negative ones first. Why it is vital that you must pray, whether you're a Christian or not. It is vital that you must pray. In Ephesians 2, we learn that everyone, everyone, the face of the earth, is disobedient, dead, and doomed. That's how Ephesians 2 starts off. But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You were by nature objects of wrath, Paul says. That's who we are. We might think the 21st century is worse in its ethical and moral behavior than other centuries. But you know, every time somebody becomes a Christian, it's a miracle. It takes God to act. It takes as much of a miracle for God 
to bring a pew-sitting Presbyterian to faith as it takes to bring a child-molesting murderer to faith. That's offensive, isn't it? But that's the reality. We, we're not, you know, sometimes we pray or we think as if people are only mostly dead and only slightly disobedient and only partially doomed. But no. The reality is every single person, from the person that we think is the most noble to the person that we think is the, the dregs of society, it takes a miracle from God to bring any one of them to salvation. And that's why, if you're a Christian, you must pray. You must pray for family, for friends, for our community, for our county, for our country. You must pray. We need God to act. And prayer is where we treat God as God, where we treat sin as serious, lost as lost, and hell as hell. And you know, we can't always be bringing our tears to people. People might think that's some sort of form of emotional blackmail if, if we were always in tears before. Well, you don't get how serious it is. They, they, they wouldn't cope with that. But we can always bring our tears to God. This is serious. And we must pray. And if you're not a Christian, you must pray because you can't do it. Paul says that every one of us is dead, disobedient, and doomed. And just to finish that off, verse 4 shows us where the hope comes from. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. That's why we must pray. The second negative reason is, look at the opposition in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we're told that as if having a hostile world, as if having um, unbelieving family and friends and neighbors isn't bad enough, that there is a supernatural struggle going on. There is a supernatural struggle going on. There are dark forces of evil, not just simply at a global level, but at at a cosmic level. Satan is real. Demons are real, just as much as God is real. And this is the environment in which we are called to live the Christian life. So we must pray, because our weapons are not physical, they're spiritual, and prayer is our weapon. And we must pray so that we resist temptation. We must pray that we grow in godliness and in righteousness. We must pray because of the opposition. And then the two positive reasons. Christ reigns over all things. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 22. God placed him, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to rule over everything for the church. Jesus Christ reigns over everything. Why must you pray? Because you're going to the one who controls everything. That helps us with our despair. It helps us with doubt. It helps us with whenever there's a delay in an answer to our prayers. We're not thinking, well, you know, um, 
I don't know who's in charge here. It's my Savior who's in charge. And I am to pray to Him because He reigns over everything. And the second positive reason to pray is that Christ is able. Look at Ephesians uh, 2 and verse 20. Ephesians 2, sorry, verse 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Look beyond the circumstances. Look beyond the people. Look beyond everything that is just in front of you that would discourage you from praying. Put on, as it were, a pair of glasses that have he is able etched across the lenses so that as you look at the news, you hear or you see he is able. As you look at society around you, instead of despairing, you say, you see, he is able. And then you pray. You pray because he is able. He is able to transform society. He is able to transform individuals. He is able to transform nations. He is able. So pray. Pray because you must. You must pray because Christ is the one who sits on the throne and reigns over all things. He is the one who is able to change all things and He does so in response to the prayers of His people. And so, let me close with three brief applications. One, pray. Pray persistently. Pray persistently. I don't know about you, but it's hard to keep on praying persistently at times. Sometimes I need fresh words, fresh thoughts. And I found using Paul's prayers here a great launch pad to help refresh my prayers. Or David's Psalms, a great place to refresh my prayers from. To take his language and his words and his thoughts and his prayer requests and to turn them back to God. Pray with persistence. We'll think a little bit more next week about uh, how we're to pray in the Spirit. But pray with persistence. Use God's Word to refresh your words. Secondly, pray with discipline. Pray with discipline. Prayer is work. So discipline yourselves to do it. This is real work. It's not just a, oh, you've got to say your prayers. This is real work. We are coming as servants of the king to the king, asking the king to act in accordance with his plan and purpose in our world. That's our privilege. And we should be doing it. It's our privilege to pray for our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, our community. That's our privilege. And we should do it. And so let me urge you to give yourself more to prayer. You know, if you, if you set aside an extra, I was going to say an extra five minutes, three times a day, morning, evening, or morning, afternoon, and evening, or morning, lunchtime, and evening, or even just set aside 15 minutes extra to pray. And you took the first five minutes to spend time trying to get that glimpse of God, worshiping Him, using some of the Psalms to help you to see more of God using passage in Isaiah to see more of God, praising Him for who He is. And that will encourage you 
as you see his greatness and grandeur and holiness and power and goodness and truth and wisdom, it'll encourage you to ask great things of God. Five minutes at that. And then take another five minutes to pray for your family. Think around them. Picture them. Pray for your extended family. Pray for your church family. Think round them and pray. Pray for Johnny and I as we preach. Pray for you as you hear. Five minutes at that. Five minutes praying for your neighbours. Praying for the villages and the towns of Donegal. Praying for the counties in Ireland. Pray with discipline. You know, if we did an extra 15 minutes a day, I think that works out at an extra 90 minutes a week which is something like an extra six hours a month, which is an extra 72 hours a year. Soon mounts up, doesn't it? But it's not the amount that counts. It's what it says about how much we are expecting our God to work, our Father to do something about His Son's honor and glory. That's what it says about, that this matters to us. And pray not just with persistence and with discipline, but with faith. But with faith. I read an account of a man who uh, had been to go to preach somewhere and he had been praying about what to preach on. And uh, he stayed up all night trying to figure out what to preach on and to get his sermon written. And he eventually got it written and he went out the next, and he had a real peace about what he was going to preach on. Uh, and he went out the next day, and he invited people to come to the meeting. And there was a torrential downpour. And the man who was opening the door said to him, well, there's no point opening the door. Nobody will come. It's so miserable. Three guys came. The man thought, well, I prayed. And this is the message that has been given to me. And there's only three here. But I'm going to believe that that's God's plan. So he preached to them. And he went home to bed because he was shattered. And he got up the next morning to hear reports that two of the three had become Christians and that one of them was already out going around all the shops in the town, all the stores, uh, telling the people that he knew about the wonder of who Jesus Christ was. And the next night, more people came to the meeting and after two weeks, there were 142 people had come to faith in Christ. Pray with faith. Pray with faith. And I can multiply those stories, but time is gone. So pray believing that God hears and God answers. Pray persistently. Pray with discipline. Pray with faith. Knowing that you have a Father in heaven who loves to hear you, a Son who has opened up the way and who rules everything and who is able, and you have the Holy Spirit to help you as you pray. So join me in this great adventure of Christ building his kingdom in this world. And let's be more and more people of prayer. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer.